Radio Drome. All right, welcome to another episode of Radio Drome. Guess who's back this week? Not Scott, you don't count. It's Mr. Jones. He's the one people care about. Uh, for like two minutes, I got a split here in a few. <laughs> <laughs> He's just I shouldn't have him. said that. There's going to be like one guy who's like, really? Click. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, sure, I'm sure there's going to be more than that. There's been complaints on the site about how little you've been on the show. Oh, man, Brad hasn't been on so many episodes. Yeah, I actually went back and looked. I was like, is that true? And then I looked back. I was like, wait a minute. Out of the last six episodes, I was only not on like two. I know. It's it's the weird fan overreaction about everything being Brad Jones. Everything's coming up Jones. (laughs) So let's get the Adam and Eve promo out of the way. If you go to adamandeve.com, use the promo code DROME, you get, Brad, do you remember? Butt stuff. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, you, you can get butt stuff, yes, <laughs> but you you also get fifty percent off of that butt stuff. You get free oh. shipping for the butt stuff. You get a free mystery gift, which might be more butt stuff, and three DVDs of women maybe having butt stuff done to them. So it's a butt stuff bonanza at AdamandEve dot com using the promo code Drome. It's probably the dirtiest one of those we've ever done, by the way, Brad. And we didn't use any curse words. Well, I I, I appreciate it. I, for one, love 50% off my butt stuff. <laughs> Me too. Well, does that mean it only goes in halfway or, or what? <laughs> no, no yeah. I'm not, I'm going to let that one lie. Go on. <laughs> you're, not, you're not lubricated enough for that? No, no, not, not ready. I want to actually talk about all of us grew up in the era of the Scream Queen. Because of the slight different ages between Scott, well, Scott and I are the same age, but between Scott and I and you, Brad, what was your era of the Scream Queen? Who were your Scream Queens? Uh, my Scream Queens would be, uh, man, I watched the hell out of Halloween, man. So, so in my particular case, I think I think my first crush was PJ Souls when I was a kid. I actually thought you were going to go Jamie Lee Curtis there, but yes, PJ Souls, very nice. I'm not so sure I'd call her a scream queen. Jamie Lee Curtis, yes, because she had, in a very short period of time, Halloween, Halloween 2, Prom Night, Terror Train, and The Fog. Those Mm. those all were in like a five-year period, too. Jamie Lee Curtis, the yogurt lady? Yes, she is now the yogurt lady. That girl from the yogurt commercials. (laughs) Exactly. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. That chick from My Girl? (laughs) That chick, the hooker from Trading Places? No way. The the ones generally recognized as the main Scream Queens were Linnea Quigley, Michelle Bauer, and Brink Stevens. And in there you also had the Melissa Moores and you had ones like that. But those three were the big three. And there was recently a documentary made called Screaming in High Heels, The Rise and Fall of the Scream Queen Era. I interviewed the director of that, which we'll listen to that a little bit later. It's a really interesting thing that is so 80s. And this is what I know you'll love about it, Brad. It's an 80s phenomenon. The the Scream Queen thing really couldn't have happened the way it did in the 70s and really couldn't have happened in the 90s. Do you agree that that was an 80s thing? Uh, Yeah, it certainly was more prominent in the 80s, yeah. I should have screwed with you, though, when you asked asked me that question. I should have been like, oh, dude, Nev Campbell. (laughs) I probably would have hung up on you. No, no. (laughs) 
because <laughs> well, because as the documentary rightfully points out, the market was perfect for the rise of the Scream Queen because you had the burgeoning direct-to-video market. That these are girls that were not going to get hired on drive-in style movies because they couldn't afford them. They were not going to get hired on studio pictures because they weren't well enough known. But that direct-to-video market was that sweet spot. That was that sweet spot that allowed these girls an entirely new audience that you didn't have in the 70s or even in the 90s. Well, what are some examples that you got of some of the uh, the direct-to-video flicks there from that era? Something like Sorority Babes and the Slimeball Bolarama. Oh, okay, That gotcha. would have never even been a drive-in movie, definitely not been a studio film, but direct-to-video? That mm-hmm. absolutely fits, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Same thing with, like, a, you, you reviewed Creepazoids on your site, which had which had Linnea in it, as well as future porn star Ashlyn Gere under her real name, Kimmy McCammy. And these were the kind of films, these David Dakota films, the, I'm not a big fan of Fred Olin Ray, but you've got all the Fred Olin Ray films, and you definitely have the Lloyd Kaufman and Charles Band libraries. (laughs) You're not a big Hollywood Chainsaw Hookers fan? I like Hollywood Chainsaw Hookers. I think Fred Olin Ray, from what I've seen in interviews and stuff, and some stories I've heard from some people that have worked for him on the special effects crews. He's kind of a douchebag. Now I know what the third man feels like on this show. <laughs> just Brad and I ranting and you guys, trying to get a word You guys in. have gone and I'm just like, I don't know who these people are. I mean, I know who Linnea Quigley is. I know Michelle Bauer, Jack's daughter. And uh, I mean, it's just... <laughs> Fred Olin Ray, man, he did one of the Shannon Tweed movies in the early 90s. I got a lot of use out of that movie. Oh, Can't remember go. the title. <laughs> <laughs> you went through a whole bottle of Vaseline with that, huh? No way, dude. This was the early 90s. Raw. That was a raw period, man. Oh, okay. You, you were branching out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was trying new things when I was 13. <laughs> <laughs> That's the experimental age. But so, like, the, the, experimental age of 30 is like, hmm, do I do this with the lights on or off tonight? <laughs> no, well, to me, it was, can I hit the mirror from here? At least that was my experience. But okay, so going back to the Scream Queens, as we diverged greatly, actually a lot faster than we normally do, Brad, which is kind of strange. But for the Scream Queens, like, you, you got, you got this, this interesting thing where the girls started to get hired and you, as the viewer, you stopped seeing them as whatever character they were supposed to be in the movie, and you yeah. just saw Linnea Quigley and Michelle Bauer and Brink Stevens. Oh, look, Brink Stevens is being chopped up by a drill in Slumber Party Massacre. You didn't see her character. You saw Brink. Well, you have that when uh, when it comes to the point where they're playing a, a very, very similar character time and time and time again. Which is one thing that I credit Linnea with. She really did try and experiment with her characters. You, you, you can't say the same character she played in Slimeball is anything like the character she played in Return of the Living Dead or anything like the character she played in Savage Streets. Oh, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, she tried all these different roles. And it's funny to go back and watch Savage Streets nowadays to see Linnea as this sweet little deaf and mute girl that you know... Even if you haven't seen the movie, something really bad is about to happen to her at any moment, you know? One of the criticisms of this era in the 80s was that these scream queens are... It's its kind of like how they looked at torture porn in the 90s. It's more just porn with depravity thrown in. And here we have these scream queens, these beautiful young women being 
done in by a drill or a saw or something like that. How do you answer these kinds of critics? Critics that say that it's pretty much just that the movies only exist just to see you know some big dude in a mask chopping up women left and right. Correct. I don't know. My thing is, I mean, that's that's the genre of movie it is. It's a movie about a it's a movie about a group, usually a group of teenagers who go wherever, and there's some guy that's after them. That's that's just the genre. It's hard to do that without that being the case you know it's like it's like saying like you know like you know it's hard to do a comedy without the laughs look at the lead character in those movies the lead survivor that is usually a female character i've usually always said this about them in slasher movies and that when you kind of break it down they're a lot more three-dimensional really than they are in some other genres, like let's say an action film, let's say a supporting female lead in an, in an action film that is usually there just to support whoever is the lead person there. The lead girl in a slasher movie is usually fairly th- a fairly three-dimensional character. They're usually a very human presence, and they're typically strong characters too, who by the end of the movie do actually take care of whatever it is that's after him, whatever it is that's chasing him. That's that's how I looked at it. Yeah, in those movies, you do have a lot of gore, and in a lot of cases, you do have a lot of TNA as well. But that's just the kind of movie it is, and that particular fact, it doesn't make the movie good or bad per se it isn't the only it isn't the only good or bad thing about it you can have a you can have a terrible slasher movie that has a lot of violence and has a lot of tna in it it still has to be a well written well written well written enough it still has to be well written enough for the genre it still has to be fairly entertaining and you still have to like a lot of these characters which in the 80s i think they did it best in those slasher movies i my one of my favorite series from the 80s is the friday the 13th flicks in terms of horror movies because in those flicks they're generally made up of a lot of really 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 likable characters and I, I I dig that about those. So that's that's usually how I'll answer something like that. That and I agree with everything you just said. But I don't think that really brought about the scream queen era. The scream queens tended to be the ones doing the victimizing. They tended to be the one that was killing the girls. They tended to be the one that summoned the demon. They or to the like in slime ball, they tended to be not only the survivor but but like Linnea was the badass traditional bad girl. And that's how why she was able to survive. So I'd say there's also that with the Scream Queens, they tended to not be the victims once they became a name. Like you look at Brink in Slumber Party Massacre, she wasn't a name yet. You look at Brink three years later, and she's the one wielding the axe. Like Hollywood Chainsaw Hookers. You've got Michelle Bauer as the killer. And you know, you've got Linnea Quigley as a killer. They were hardly victims in that. Linnea a little bit, but you know what I mean. That's how I answer that question, Scott. That's that's good. I'm sorry to bring the depth to the show, but <laughs> what show have you been listening to? God, we don't talk we depth hate on that this stuff show. Here. My God, man! <laughs> I know what thinking me do. Radio Drome. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and then you'd also have, and I, I see a lot of like, especially if a famous person outside the genre, like like say Debbie Harry in Video Drome. I've ever, I've seen her called a scream queen for being in Videodrome, and I'm like, that's not really a scream queen, is it? 
No, no, I've never, uh, I've never even heard that. I've never heard, uh, I've never heard her call that before. I, she, I just, she actually had a featurette in Scream Queens magazine. Really, Debbie Harry, because she did like three horror films. <laughs> that makes her a Scream Queen. I, I don't get that. One of the things that was so great about this era was it came about at the same time that the direct-to-video market was blowing up. As I mentioned before, the, the drive-in market was dying. So you had this new market that was, you know, like at the drive-in, you had people that would just go to the drive-in. Didn't matter what was playing. They'd go see whatever was at the drive-in, or they'd be screwing someone in the back seat. <laughs> I was going to say, or not see it. <laughs> it was on, okay? It was on. But then direct-to-video were mainly only hitting either the, you, you know, of course, you get the curious with the great box art. You'd sucker somebody in. But more or less, you were getting the people who only wanted to see this. So you were hitting your absolute target audience to me. What do you guys think was the kind of end of the Scream Queen era, at least for you? Because I can say, I, don't, I can't pick a definite, like, that. this is the movie where, where it stopped. But I can say they didn't really survive into the 90s for me. The only 90s girl that really, I think, would qualify in the 80s definition of a Scream Queen would be Debbie Rashan. Otherwise... I can't I can't think of any of those other 90s low-budget slasher flicks that really brought about, like you made the joke earlier about Nev Campbell, like, you know, Nev Campbell or Sarah Michelle Gellar. No, those are not Scream Queens, at least not, not by my definition of it. Well, they are in the late 90s, but that's not saying much. I don't, I can't really pinpoint that. I mean, it's the easiest answer is to say, is to say, oh well, you know, it's when it's when the '90s hit. But I mean, it's not like you know the calendar flipped over. Hey, it's January first, nineteen ninety. That's when it ended. I can't really pinpoint a very good example there of 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 really when that of really when that kind of died down. Maybe I mean they were still making, uh, you know, they were still making the franchise slasher flicks around that same time too. You didn't really have anyone too terribly prominent in that genre in a lot of them, but I don't know. I, I honestly don't know. I mean, uh, the, you had, of course, you had the boom of the slasher flick in the early 1980s, and then after a while, once you got into the late 80s, it just kind of tapered down a little bit. I think what killed it was when movies in the 90s started looking at these, these Scream Queen and slasher flicks ironically. When they started playing with the rules, I mean, Scream is the big, big example of it, of going, here are the rules, we're going to break them all. It was that kind of an attitude and, and the rise of the, they really didn't want to see fun slasher flicks. They wanted to think, and you had things like the rise of movies like Natural Born Killers and on the flip side of Natural Born Killers, the Doom Generation Oh God! <laughs> I knew that was coming, Brad. And these these <laughs> films that go, okay, yeah, that's cool, that's blood, blah blah blah. I want to look at the soul. I want to look into my characters and make them all complicated and bisexual and blah 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 blah. And you had '90s audiences going, dude, we're just gonna smoke pot and wear flannel, and and you're right, we want to look into the soul. They weren't they weren't looking for that surface fun screamy bit anymore and i think really that's what killed him I, I and think... i'm having a hard time even thinking of a great slasher flick from the early 90s exactly that's what i'm saying <laughs> well and then you also had the difference in like the nev campbells and sarah michelle gellers they were already established tv stars at that point when you had brink and linnea and michelle 
they were just up and comers in these slasher flicks. They didn't already have an established mainstream audience to go to. So you already you had for say I know what you did last summer. You already had Sarah Michelle Gellar's Buffy audience that was going to follow her to that movie. Whereas when Linnea did all those David Dakota movies, it was just hey I remember this chick. Wasn't that the naked chick from Return of the Living Dead? Oh, imagine that. Something chooses something already in the mainstream and Josh shits on it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Brad, I know you got a smart-ass comment. Go. <laughs> no, he took the words right out of my mouth. <laughs> Am I wrong, though? But you're like, look, even look at Jamie Lee Curtis, Halloween, introducing Jamie Lee Curtis. It wasn't like Halloween came out and you're like, oh, it's that chick from Trading Places. <laughs> hey, look, it's the yogurt chick. <laughs> right. Well, it's because exactly. trading places wouldn't take wouldn't come out for another five years. Well, and then you had an, you had another thing that that I think was different from the '80s and '90s Scream Queens was the '80s Scream Queens had no problem taking their tops off, or in Linnea's <laughs> case, the whole the bottom too. I, it's been a while since I've seen like uh, Practical Magic or I Know What You Did Last Summer. I don't think Nev Campbell and Sir Michelle Gellar got naked in those, did they? No, Nev Campbell did a th- did a threesome scene in Wild Things, and she was the one who kept her clothes on. Yeah, but so... she did actually. Wait, she did do she did do full nudity in um, that James Toback movie. Um, Hang on, when let me will write I this be loved? Down. I think is what it was called. <laughs> let me write this down. Hang on, what what was yeah, that? It, <laughs> when <laughs> will I be loved? Uh, uh, it's I don't know. It's maybe about ten years old or something like that. Uh, she 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 went com- she went complete in that one. Because I remember Linnea. I this was a big thing when you listen to the commentary on Night of the Demons. You know what the most controversial scene in that movie? Not not the scene where she puts the lipstick through her nipple. No. The scene where she lifts her dress up and you can see her hair. That was the scene that, that the MPAA had the biggest objection to. You and can't you just, release that. Yeah, and it's like, seriously? So, I mean, you know, you had Michelle in that that were more than willing to, and especially in Michelle's case, and she came from the hardcore world, she was used to doing a lot more than just showing her goodies off. Since, mm-hmm. since for those that don't know, and I do ask this question to Jason Paul Collum in the interview, she came from the hardcore world under the name Pia Snow. She was in movies like Cafe Flesh and, and Night Dreams and whatnot. She did more than just take her top off in front of the camera. Hang on, let me write this down. Will you stop <laughs> yeah, it? Taking notes. Will you stop it? No, it's even like uh, Marilyn Chambers in, uh, when she did Rabbit. Had she left hardcore at that point, or was that just like a small divergence into the mainstream? Or was that, that was a small divergence into the mainstream. She did, she did plenty of other hardcore stuff after that. And I really don't consider her a scream queen because mostly what she did was sci-fi movies or action movies. But you had, like we brought up before, Ashlyn Gear. She's mm-hmm. the only porn star that I can think of from that era that had a mainstream, if you can consider, you know, direct-to-video movies or Silk Stockings episodes, mainstream, a mainstream Hollywood career at the same time she had a mainstream hardcore porn career. I can't think of another case where they were able to balance those two worlds at the same time. You had lots of ones that would do porn and then do mainstream or do mainstream and then go to porn, but not simultaneously. Yeah, I can think of a couple where where you would see them pop up in something mainstream from time to time, but it certainly wasn't like balancing both careers like uh, when um, Georgina Spelvin was the hooker in Police Academy, Robert Kerman popping up in a couple of mainstream stuff. 
uh, I think when Sonny Landham started doing his early stuff, maybe even up to the 48 hours point, he was still doing some hardcore stuff. Uh, oh, what's the redhead from Toolbox Murders? Uh, it actually started out doing a couple of horror flicks and then went into pornography. And see, so usually it goes the other way. It's the porns that bring in to the hardcore flicks instead of the other way around normally. But but the way I look at it is the Scream Queen era kind of died right when the direct-to-video market changed. Because you remember in the early 90s when the direct-to-video market, it almost became mainstream when you all of a sudden started seeing New Line and those and Miramax and those type of movies win all yeah. the awards and the direct-to-video market stopped being about what was traditionally called the B-movies and the low-budget quickies. You had these $10 million New Line films with major casts coming out that were being called direct-to-video. That, to me, it was when things changed. That's when you, you know, Linnea and them started finding it harder and harder to work, I think. I can see that. Mm-hmm. That whole thing turned it <laughs> debuting on uh, Cinemax and HBO and stuff like that. Yeah, because what used to be direct-to-video then became direct-to-cable. It wasn't really quite the same. Like, the the video market just was not the same thing. And so, well, it seems like anymore, if you want to see an R-rated slasher movie, you have to get one that's released direct-to-DVD. Well, Scott, you were just trying to find the first Sleepaway Camp. Yeah, uh, believe it or not, my wife has never seen it. She's not familiar with the twist at the end. Oh, nice. At all. And I, and I thought, okay, Halloween, great night to, uh, to introduce her to the, the exemplary filmmaking that is Sleepaway Camp. Can't say that was straight. Damn right. I really can't. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, and I was, even, I was even trying to torrent it. I cannot find it anywhere. It's, it's funny because I, I figured, okay, this has to be on Netflix because this just has Netflix written all over it. They have Sleepaway Camp 2, Sleepaway Camp 3, and a preview of Sleepaway Camp 4. No. Oh, yeah, yeah. My, they, they do only have those on there because uh, my girlfriend was dying to see the first Sleepaway Camp movie, but just watch the second one and third one because those are the only ones that were on, that were, like you said, were on Netflix. And I was like... I've got I've got the first one. I'll show it to you. With the first one, you got to be you got to be careful with the first one though because uh if you want to see it uncut, there's a cheaper DVD of it you can get that's uncut. The main one that was released by Anchor Bay for some reason is edited. I I don't know if there's a newer DVD of it that might be uncut, but there is a cheaper DVD of it uh, that, v- that, you, that you can see. The VHS is uncut. Yeah, I was going to say, my, my copy's got all those scenes that you were talking about in your review that were like, hey, that used to go on longer. So I know yeah, my VHS uh-huh. has that. Yeah, yeah. The, the, VHS, the VHS for it's uncut. The most common D- DVD for it, unfortunately, is edited. For, I don't know why, but for some reason it is. You get those weird things sometimes, like, especially when the fact that don't some of the sequels, when they reuse some of the footage, show the footage uncut that was cut in the first footage or in the first movie? I um, well, in the fourth one, yeah, but the fourth one is like this kind of fan-made thing that's basically just a clip show it's like an hour of a clip show and like 10 minutes of new footage so i believe that the copy that the guy used was was uncut i i I think so but in terms of sleepaway camp two and three they didn't even show any they didn't show any clips from the first one in that 
they did something similar with the Maniac Cop movies. The, do you remember the police station massacre in Maniac Cop 2? Yeah, yeah, hell yeah. That was cut for an R. They said it went on too long, there were too many gunshots, etc., etc. They got an X originally, so they cut that for an R. Well, they used that entire sequence in its uncut entirety in Maniac Cop 3, and they got an R for it. How does that make sense? The footage is too explicit for Maniac Cop 2, but if we reuse the footage as a flashback in Maniac Cop 3, you're okay to show it uncut. Kind of like how now, like, I don't know if you were watching any, like, when they were showing, like, the Halloweens or the Friday the 13th movies on AMC the past few days. Like, I kind of had them on, like, just as background when I was just doing some stuff on the computer. And it it was kind of funny to me because they're obviously using the same cut versions of them that, that they've been using for several years. But nowadays, when on channels like AMC or any of those cable networks that pretty much are are pretty are pretty shows on there that are pretty graphic you know that if they were released theatrically would so be an r it's kind of funny when you have that nowadays and then you have this butchered to crap version of friday the 13th part four while you'll be while in the commercial break it'll show this ultra graphic preview for the newest episode of the walking dead I remember when I worked at Channel 32 when I showed the Howling one Halloween. Remember the mm-hmm. scene at the beginning in the porno shop? They didn't cut all that porno shop background. They didn't even really fuzz it out. They just kind of made it a little bit blurry because it wasn't like a normal blur blob. It was just like those scenes in the porno shop were slightly out of focus. And it's I thought that's, that's an interesting way to get around all the dildos in the background. Fantastic. It's also the reason that cinematographer has never worked again. (laughs) Because of that TV cut. Because of that damn TV cut. We're going to go to the interview real quick, and then we'll come back and we'll wrap this up. What what made you want to make this documentary? What, What spoke to you so much about the Scream Queen era that said to you that you needed to let others know about this great era in films? I had just kind of grown up on them. I, you know, when I was about 12 years old and I started getting into horror films, it just happened that these were the movies that I rented a lot. I, you know, after you see the girls' faces time after time after time, I became fans of the girls. And then as, you know, I, as time kind of faded past, and a lot of them were kind of becoming forgotten, even though they were still making films. The video market had changed with YouTube and the bazillion channels that you have on your televisions now. There wasn't as much of a medium for focus of these girls to to be in. It had become a forgotten era. Kind of what these girls had done, and the, the group of filmmakers that they worked with, what these the small group of people had all accomplished on just a little bit of money during this time. And, and, you know, you read all these history books, you read horror movie books, and there's never any mention of this group of people who took a little amount of money and very little time and were able to actually create an industry. The little cottage industry and the girls in particular took what they had. They took these were girls who were being exploited and they turned it, became the exploiters. So it's reminding the public about these women and the filmmakers, but it's also kind of giving the girls their credit as to creating what the modern version of a Scream Queen is. That's something I noticed about when I was watching it, that it, it, it wasn't completely about the girls. There was a lot of it about the the market and just that era that, like you pointed out, is sadly gone. Right. You know, I mean, before these girls, 
I mean, there had been women actresses who were called scream queens, like Jamie Lee Curtis and Faye Ray, and these girls made it an image. They marketed themselves with trading cards and bars of soap and 1-900 numbers where you would call and they would tell you a scary bedtime story. You know, it just really kind of created, again, this little industry. And when I, when I say the Scream Queen era, that's what that was. It wasn't just a girl who screamed in a movie. It was an industry. You know, you had, there were several girls who kind of followed suit uh, around the same time. You had Melissa Moore and Maria Ford and Julie Strain and Debbie Dutch and, and Deborah Lamb. And so there were, there were a handful of girls who did kind of did the same thing. They had books come out. Debbie Rashawn kind of really latched onto that whole concept and got it pretty much better than anyone else beyond the original three. So it isn't so, so when I say Scream Queen, I'm not just referring to, again, a girl who just screams in a horror movie. It's a girl who makes an image, almost kind of characterizes herself. So if you take Brink or Linnea or Michelle, you never really watch them in a movie as the character that they're portraying. You almost always kind of remember that they're Brink, Linnea, or Michelle. Exactly. I remember the the terror on tape thing that Michelle did, that Continental Video kind of comp tape. Came in as one of the vampires. And I don't even think she's credited as a character. I think she's just Michelle Bauer as Vampire Woman or something like that. Right. Well, and actually, and now a lot of them, even the, they, they just, I just was with them this past week, the three of them, and they just made a new movie. They just shot a movie as themselves. So it's it's a movie within a movie, and Brink, Linnea, and Michelle play Brink, Linnea, and Michelle. Um, and that's happened several times before. I know Brink, I think, did a movie called Web of Darkness many years ago, and she played Brink. So it's, it's kind of the same thing when you're watching Vincent Price, or you're watching Christopher Lee, or you start to, so the, the actor starts to become the character rather than the character that they're portraying on screen. Does that make sense? Yeah, obviously you said you focused on these three, you know, excluding Melissa Moore and Maria Ford and all them. How difficult was it to get them to all sit down and talk to you again? Or, or was it something that they were very happy to do? Well, they were all, it was a combination of happy and surprise. It was not difficult. The only one who was a little hesitant was Michelle. And it wasn't in any kind of a uh, snotty or an embarrassed kind of a way. She was just kind of curious, like, really? Like, you want to make them, like, I'm, like, none, the three of them really didn't quite get it, get what they were. And actually, none of the people in the documentary really got it until I actually sat them down and did the interviews. And when they saw the footage, they were all kind of like, oh, yeah, I guess we were kind of a thing. Um, they were all very gracious, and they all signed up for it. The only thing that it wasn't really even that much of a problem was just kind of organizing schedules. And with Michelle, as soon as she knew that everybody else was on board, she was right on board with them as well. Michelle was the one who had kind of walked away from the whole thing. You know, she got married, and she had a child, and she just became a mom. And the, the child is now an adult and has gone off to college. And she, you know, she built an, a completely unrelated business with her husband. And so whenever the jobs would come up, because it was somebody that she personally knew and she was kind of doing them a favor, she doesn't seem all that interested in going back into doing all the conventions and the photo shoots and that kind of stuff. It took me a while to hunt her down. It finally got through to her through Ted Newsom, who was also in the documentary. And as a result of the documentary now, the three girls are getting a lot more work, and uh, Michelle included. And, and they kind of, Michelle kind of refers to it as coming up to play. She still doesn't take it that seriously. You know, I don't know what, if she's looking to travel and 
do all that kind of stuff, or if it's like bring her in for a day, give her a paycheck, she does it and goes home at night to her family. You know, I think that's kind of how she more views it. Whereas Linnea and Brink still take it very seriously. And, um, you know, this is their career. A lot of documentaries really falter when they're talking about subjects like this when they can't get the rights to the clips. It's just literal talking heads for, you know, five straight minutes. And you liberally sprinkle clips from the movies, behind-the-scenes photos, things like that, throughout the documentary. How hard was that to clear all that? Or was was everybody just, yeah, yeah, you can use the Full Moon catalog for this? Actually, I'm very surprised at how much we were able to get permission for for free because... A big chunk of it was uh, Full Moon stuff. A big chunk of it was Frittle and Ray's stuff. It's amazing what happens when you just ask. <laughs> you know? I mean, that's really what it came down to It came down to for a lot of it. There are a few clips that are free use, or that we use fair use. And it's, I think it's defined by, like, you can only use, like, eight seconds of something, and it has to pertain specifically to what's being referenced on screen. So we did do that for some of the really obscure stuff where we just couldn't find the people who made the thing. There, you know, a lot of movies that these girls did back in the 80s and 90s were produced by guys who somehow came into some money, made a movie, and then disappeared. People were really hard to track down. A lot of the films, though, were um, that we, you know, that we got permission for. You'd be surprised how many of them Fred Olin Ray and Charlie Band were behind. And so we just kind of got permission to use all of it. So that's, and that's largely how the girls worked so much in the 80s was because they were working for the same people over and over again. We kind of lucked into it that way. Well, you know, and this is my, this is my um, recommendation to other documentary filmmakers who are kind of going after entertainment purposes. A lot of people think that they can't get the footage, and the fact is I went to Playboy, I went to MTV, and I said, look, this is what I'm making. We don't have a lot of money to make this thing. This is across the board. Nobody's, we're not paying for clips for anybody. So it's um, there's a specific yeah there's a specific term that's used uh, base, which basically says nobody is getting paid but if I have to if you pay one then you have to pay all so that's what we kind of have gone with so when I approached MTV and I approached Playboy which were I, I thought were going to be the hardest ones they were totally amicable they were like sure you know as long as you don't pay anybody else you know then we'll you know I just had to sign all the licensing stuff and uh, it was it was a lot easier than I think than I had anticipated it to be so I think. If you do your best to go after, you know, to, to go to the people who do own this material and, and explain your your passion for the project and your lack of money in the it, budget. It seems like you had a problem with a couple, though. I saw the USA Up All Night and the drive-in theater clips were clearly VHS off-airs. Yeah, well, and a lot of that stuff just doesn't exist anymore either. You know, the, the, Playboy, the Playboy one was um, VHS and the MTV one was also from VHS. So a lot of the stuff we, that we found... Places were like, well, you know, we don't really know where to go back and find this stuff anymore. So we just used it from the source materials that we had, which was dusting off a lot of old VHS tapes. And that was my editor, again, Derek Carey, um, spent many, many hours plugging old VHS tapes into his, into his program and putting them into the movie. So he said he saw way more B-movies than he ever needs to see again in the rest of his life. So, And it was just a lot of generosity from filmmakers who, you know, in all honesty, it, this is a, a big, huge advertisement for them. You know, Dave Dakota said on uh, somebody recently, the documentary started airing on Chiller. He, he said to somebody, oh, have you seen the infomercial on my career? It's called Screaming High Heels. It's airing on Chiller right now. So Dave Dakota completely gets it. I think Fred and... Charlie also kind of get it that by allowing us to use the clips, they've just made themselves a big 60-minute commercial. 
And a lot of these films now, as a result of the documentary, are being put back out. Um, and they haven't been available for, you know, almost 20 years, some of them. So I know a lot of the Dakota movies are being put back out um, throughout the fall, like Deadly Embrace and Murder Weapon. Dream Maniac has been put back out. Charlie Van has put like Sorority Babes. And I know Dakota's putting Nightmare Sisters back out on DVD for the first time in 10 years. So it's so it's and that was kind of the other purpose in doing this was to kind of both inform a new generation that these movies exist, remind the older generation that these movies existed, and to kind of get the filmmakers to put these things back out and make them available to the public again. That kind of worked in my favor. <laughs> well, were they difficult in any way that you know they didn't want to talk about something that maybe little Linnea was like I really did, didn't have a good experience on that movie and I don't want to talk about that one or were they all pretty much open about everything? They were all very open. Everything that I asked, you know, of the girls and the directors, you know, we we kind of we kind of I said beforehand if there's anything that I approach you with and you don't feel comfortable talking about it please just say, I'm not comfortable talking about that. And as it turned out, there wasn't anything that, that was taboo. So they, they were very free. And when I walked away from the, from the discussions with all of these people, the thing that kind of surprised me was that they're not ashamed of any of the stuff that they did. They're like, you know what? I did it. I had fun doing it. Even the hard stuff, you know, got me somewhere. So I appreciate every single thing that I've done. That was the, the general attitude of, of all the members of this. Well, along those lines, was it Michelle or you that decided to leave out her hardcore career? Because she mentions like her first movie was something that, and she had like five movies prior to that, but they were hardcores. Whose whose choice was it to leave out even mentioning the hardcore films she did? That was more so mine, in all honesty. I kind of sat and I discussed with my editor, Derek Carey, and we, we kind of went over how much do we really want to go into the adult film career. I know that she has a child. I didn't know how much the child knew, and I didn't want to be the one responsible for informing the child, who does now know, by the way. So Michelle had told me that, you know, at some point, the daughter had actually found out through friends about her adult film career. It was very, I felt it was very gracious of Michelle to give me her time, and I kind of wanted to make sure that I respected her in that sense. Oh, no, I, um, I wasn't saying that, like, as an attack on you or Michelle. Oh, no, 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 I'm not taking that at all. I was just curious yeah, no. because, curious that she declined to mention all those and started with her first like horror film as her she claims her first movie i just thought that was a little curious is all and that was another thing was with the structure of what we were doing we kind of felt that it just didn't really fit into the into the story because we kind of pick up most of the story with the girls as they were becoming scream queens so when she refers to her first movie as being the tomb she's i think more referring to it being the, the horror stuff Michelle, yeah. So Michelle never denied doing it, and we just sat down, and I just felt that because she was opening herself up to me with all of, with just kind of coming and being a part of the product, I didn't want to go into all the hardcore stuff. So it does get touched on a little bit in the um, in the bonus features with uh, with unused with the um, like the unused clip footage, but as for putting it fitting it into the actual documentary, you know, we just decided that we just we didn't want to, we didn't want it touch on that subject. So. What kind of response have you seen from the documentary so far? You, you, either critically, sales-wise, or whatnot. I'm sure Chiller was great exposure for that. Yeah, I, we've had a fantastic response to it. Critical reactions, for the most part, has been fantastic. The DVD has only been out for about a week now, so I've slowly started getting some letters from fans of the 
of the piece. I'm getting a lot of it through Facebook. People have been contacting me. Everybody seems to love it. There, uh, we had an, we have had an issue with um, stealing. Uh, somebody uploaded the movie onto the internet for free before we ever had a chance to release it. So that has deterred sales to some extent. I, however, went on to Facebook and put on a rant that kind of went viral. Are you happy the Scream Queen era did end when it did, or do you wish it had gone into the 90s and you would have seen Linnea as she got older and doing these movies and Brink as she got older doing these movies? Or do you guys think the the, the main era ended when it should have? That's a really good question. Um, you know... If it could have kept going and they still did it really, really well, I would be all for that. But, you know, there there are still slasher movies nowadays. They're just mostly terrible and in a bad way. So so I don't know. It's one of those deals where, like, well, if it kept going as it did, would we still be ending up here at the same point where it's like, oh, man, I just got back from Sorority Row. That was ass. So I that I don't know. That's 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 a good that's a good question. I mean, when you look at those movies, they very much are products of their time. I mean, if they could could have continued to do it and do it really well and non cynically, I would have I would have been all I would have been all for that. But who knows if that would have happened? I don't think that could have happened. The Scream Queen era ended precisely when. When it was going to end. When it needed to? When, not necessarily when it needed to, because I don't think it ever, I don't think genres ever need to go away. If somebody, even even Brad, with a relatively meager budget today, could make a good Scream Queen flick, but it would still, even though it's a modern movie, it would still feel dated because of what was on it. The Scream Queen era came to an end, Parachute Pants came to an end, because they were supposed to. The society, like I said, you got to remember back what the, the early 90s and, and what morose people we were back then. And, and society really did want to stop. They wanted to stop the fun, and they wanted to, to look inward. That's why we got great, wonderful films, you know, like Brad's favorite, which I'm not even going to say because I don't want him to vomit. But, you know, that's why we got great examples of that new type of filmmaking and really, really crappy examples of that new type of filmmaking. It's because society changed. So, yeah, there's the Scream Queen era came to end precisely when it would have either way. Would I love, like I said, would I love to get together with Brad and shoot a new Scream Queen film? Just set to in ha- 1988. Yeah, ju- well, I don't care when it's set, but just to have some fun? Yes. Would it be incredibly dated? Yes, would it still yeah. would it still do well? Maybe I don't know. So yeah, that's 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 very true. Yeah, because if I if I were to make a slasher movie or something like that, or a scream queen flick or something like that, it would very much be written it written and made in the style of those from the early to mid eighties. One thing I saw about when this era ended, and you saw like Michelle Bauer, she retired and she just became a mom. And, mm-hmm. you know, Brink is an actual member of Mensa, and she has a degree in talking to dolphins. She just kind of went on to her own life. And Linnea kept working in lower and lower budget movies. You saw the roles for these girls change. Like in 2002, I believe, the movie American Nightmare came out, where mm-hmm. Brink, now instead of being either the person holding the axe or chainsaw or the person getting chopped up, she was the mom 
of the person getting chopped up. And so you kind of saw that role reversal. That They've become the authority figure. They are now the police officer. They are now the FBI agent investigating the killings. So yeah. it, it really has changed how you look at them as actresses when that role just, I mean, you know, they can't pull off that scream queen thing anymore. They're now the authority. See, I think, I think another thing that happened was the, the audience had changed. We'd seen it. We'd gotten smarter as an audience. I don't know. They're the, still making Medea movies. I can't give you got smarter as an audience. I said we. I didn't say everybody. I said we. You know, audiences for those screen flings, they got, they got smarter, and that's why you, you also saw a switch in horror, especially influenced by the Japanese film industry, of this, this cerebral get-into-your-brain and make you kind of distrust the world around you, like like what the Japanese have done with modern technology in films and made the cell phone the bad guy, the computer the bad guy, this stuff that the we VHF use every day. in the ring. Yeah, exactly. Horror changed because the audience changed. And, and yeah, I don't, think the, I don't think it would have survived. And, and, yeah, you see the actresses getting older. I, I, I can't see Linnea Quigley now doing a reprising a, a role as anything but a mom or an FBI investigator or something like that. It, it just, it, it can't last. <laughs> yeah. To go off of that too, that the audience just kind of just got over time there towards the, towards the uh, late eighties and the early nineties, just kind of got tired of the product. I sort of, I sort of remember kind of going through that too, in that it wasn't necessarily that I just started hating slasher movies or anything like that. That wasn't the case at all. It's just that many of them that were being made around that time when they started dying down weren't very enjoyable. They weren't very good products. And I'm not saying that a lot of them, I'm not saying that a majority of them that I enjoyed in the early eighties were necessarily masterpieces some of them yeah but at least you could get a lot of enjoyment out of them they were they were doing they were good at what they were doing and that that started the that kind of quality started dying down quite a bit and i remember getting pretty tired pretty tired of the genre because of that you know looking back at it now it's just that they there there weren't a lot of very good ones to compare it to like the video game crash of eighty three this onslaught of very very half assed product that was putting out that led to that I think you can draw some comparisons between the two is that. you had you had just an overabundance of all of these different products in the genre and they just weren't very good and the audience got tired of it that the the scream queen could make a comeback today even with this cynical ass audience with a new brand of scream queens if they were done not in the style or like a retro feel of the 80s but in that the the fun kind of we're just making a fun goofy slasher movie instead of every slasher movie nowadays seems to be scream inspired with the self-aware humor and all that crap that i just can't stand and i know you're not a fan of it either yeah or their remakes the remakes of the slasher films just proved to me that they missed the point completely of whatever the slasher film was. I don't know if it. I don't know if it could make a comeback. I. I really. I don't. I don't see how it could possibly make a comeback without making it feel pretty retro. Do you think it's a shame that these girls never went on to bigger things? 
So I think the biggest thing Linnea has ever done was an episode of Simon and Simon. Brink never got a major movie role. Michelle never got a major movie role. Do you guys think that that they were where they needed to be or they were kind of overlooked because they were considered scream queens for say, say Linnea went out for some role. Jamie Lee Curtis got, cause Jamie Lee Curtis did make it big after yeah, coming she out. Like did. I said, mm-hmm. she had like five slasher flicks in a row, kind of yeah. counting the fog as a slasher flick. She made it big, but she's really the only one. I have always believed I'm never going to be a big radio star. I'm never going to be nationally or internationally known for Lost in the Static or Radio Drum or for any of the work that I've done with you or Brad. That's something that I accept. But I am part of something somewhat small with a bunch of really cool people who really like what we do. That, I think, is where the Scream Queens were at the time. There is a relatively small group of people who really like that kind of film and who really stand behind it. I can't speak for them, honestly, but speaking for me and and this show and Static and all the rest of them, I'm kind of proud of what we've done. If we make it really, really big someday, that's wonderful. If we don't, that's cool, too. And I think the slasher films draw a perfect parallel there where they were in the right place, the right movie, at the right time. To the right audience. To the right audience. And that, I think, is more important than big blockbuster Michael Bay type hits. So I think that's I think me. I think we've accomplished more in two years than most people accomplish in their entire careers. I agree with that. I you know, I I enjoy doing what I do and trying to and trying to look at it from that point of view as well. A lot of them really if, if you talk if you talk to a lot of a lot of them in the convention circuit and stuff like that, you know, they're proud of the audience. They're proud of the work that they've done. They love these movies. They love that they're no that there's an audience that does know from this. And you know, you just do what you do what you like. You do what you enjoy doing. I don't expect that I'm ever gonna be in anything that's a huge blockbuster or anything major like that. I just like doing what I do, you know. I can I can be in the worst piece of crap ever made. I've been in some bad movies. <laughs> and I don't I don't regret that, you know. I I enjoy the hell out of that. The way I look at it is I do think it's a slight shame because Linnea Quigley, Michelle Bauer, Brink Stevens, Melissa Moore and whatnot, we know, all know those. And it's a little bit of a shame when someone like Tyler Perry becomes a, a name that that these girls who worked hard work harder than a Nev Campbell or a Sarah Michelle Gellar they they put in their time in the trenches and they don't hey, have man. half the recognition that that is a little irritating to me so to wrap this up the scream queens was an era that if you are listening to this and you're too young to remember it go back and check out these movies movies like creepazoids sorority babes and slime ball bolarama witch trap movies like this the slumber party massacre flicks or even again pre-scream queen but if you want to see michelle bauer take a huge cock in the ass cafe flash you know and order yourself something from adamandeve.com hang on let using me write the promo this code down Drome. <laughs> and, and you know check out the, check out these movies that the, these girls put in the time and if you want to see I can't remember if Brink is in this, but Michelle and Linnea together, Hollywood Chainsaw Hookers. Yeah, you get to see both of them chopping people up in overly comedic ways. Or, or for our British listeners, Hollywood picture of a chainsaw hookers. Because you, you legally can't use the word chainsaw to advertise something in England, so they just put a picture of a chainsaw. 
So on that note, go to adamandeve.com. And there's this Jones guy. He, he's got like a website, right? Oh, right. I do. Have, I do still have that. Yeah, it's thecinemastop.com. And then there's this Scott douche. He, he's got what? Yeah, I've, I've got a couple other shows. Uh, one you guys may have heard about called Lost in the Static. Sounds uh, dumb. I, well, I enjoy doing the show, but my co-host on that show is just a complete and total loser jerk. I hate him already. Uh, exactly. Um, <laughs> I'm gonna hates, I'm gonna I'm gonna judge him without knowing him. He hates. Yeah, he does that too. <laughs> <laughs> You can contact me at 1201beyond at gmail.com, 1201beyond.com. You guys know Shadows of Pop Culture, Sanity is Razor Thin, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. All right. Good night. Good night.